Man had a problem I think we all have, which is that 19th century German music especially is so powerful, you know. I'm Diana O'Connor. Welcome to the Dingle Lit Podcast. Diagwit agus volta dan podcrail fela literha quirkaguina. Each year, at the end of November, Dingle Lit Book Festival brings together a unique weekend programme of events in English and Osgwelga on the Dingle Peninsula. In this episode of the Dingle Lit Podcast, we'll be revisiting an interview with Colm Tobin. Recently announced as the new laureate for Irish fiction, Colm Tobin really needs no introduction. Among his best-known works are The Master from 2004, winner of the Dublin Impact Prize and the LA Times Novel of the Year. And of course Brooklyn in 2009, winner of the Costa Novel of the Year. It was later turned into a film starring Sir Ronan. Vinegar Hill, his debut collection of poetry, is published this March. The collection is named after the site of the famous battle in 1798 near his native Enniscorthy. Here, Colm is interviewed by author David Butler and will join the conversation as Colm reads from his latest novel, The Magician. So Thomas Mann was born in Lübeck in the north of Germany in 1875. He came from uh, you know, a big mercantile family, went back generations. They owned um, warehouses and, and they owned ships. And um, his mother was born in Brazil. And that mixture then was a fascinating one between something that was absolutely solid and that was, that was made from sort of Hanseatic air and the other one that came from outside and was somewhat exotic. In the evenings, if the senator, who's Thomas Mann's father, were at a meeting, or in the time when Thomas and Heinrich, which is Thomas's older brother, having done their violin practice and eaten their supper, were in their nightclothes, their mother would tell them about the country of her birth, Brazil, a place so vast, she said, that no one knew how many people were there, or what they were like, or what languages they spoke. A country many, many times the size of Germany, where there was no winter, and never any frost or real cold, and where one river, the Amazon, was more than 10 times longer than the Rhine, and 10 times as wide, and many smaller rivers flowed into it that reached back deep into the forests, with trees higher than trees anywhere else in the world, with people whom no one had ever seen or would see, since they knew the forest as no one else did and they could hide if an intruder or an outsider came. Tell us about the stars, Heinrich would say. Our house in Parachi, which is in Brazil, was on the water, Julia would reply. It was almost part of the water, like a boat. When night came and we could see the stars, they were bright and low in the sky. Here in the north, the stars are high and distant. In Brazil, they are visible, like the sun during the day. They're small suns themselves, glittering and close to us especially those of us who live near water. My mother said you could sometimes read a book in the upstairs rooms at night, because the light from the stars against the water was so clear. And you could not sleep unless you fastened the shutters to keep the brightness out. When I was a girl the same age as your sisters, I really believed that all the world was like that. The shock on my first night in Lübeck was that I could not see the stars. They were covered over by clouds. Tell us about the ship. You must go to sleep. Tell us the story of all the sugar. Tell me you know the story of the sugar. Just a small part again. Well, all the marzipan that is made in Lübeck is the sugar that comes from Brazil. Just as Lübeck is famous for marzipan, Brazil is famous for sugar. 
So when the good people of Lübeck and their children eat their marzipan on Christmas Eve, they're eating, little, little do they know, that they're eating a part of Brazil. They're eating sugar that came across the sea just for them. Why don't we make our own sugar? You must ask your father that. Thank you very much for that, Colm. Uh, I think my, the first question I'd like to ask, really, it, it, it relates to the title of the magician in that it, it begs comparison to the master going back 16 or 17 years with Henry James. And it struck me that something very interesting is that whereas Henry James really was the master, the magician has an element of um, imposter syndrome or, I don't know, confidence trickstery about it, which goes all the way through this, I think, right up to the Felix Kroll book, The Confidence Man. To what extent was man a person who felt this imposter syndrome, given all the masks he put on, do you think? Um, I think it was an important element. I mean, his children called him the magician first because he was as a one of the one of, one of the sons had a nightmare as a boy, and the father came in and said, "I'm a magician. I can banish all evil spirits." And in the morning, they call him the magician. Mm. But they went on calling him that, and magician in German is Zauberer, so that they often just put the Z in a letter, meaning you know his nibs, my father. And um, I suppose they didn't really think he was a magician. They thought he was a very um, a straightforward and conforming fellow. And um, he himself um, certainly, <laughs> I mean, there's no element in him really. He, he wasn't wild in any way and he didn't perform miracles. And he was, as you say, someone who perhaps um, sought plausibility all his life um, in a way that plausibility didn't come naturally to him. There was an element in him of a, of a sort of, someone who was chancing his arm. I mean, he wasn't, for example, a scholar, but people thought he was. He wasn't, um, he, was, he was a married man with six children, but his dreams were homosexual dreams. And he became a great Democrat in America, especially during the war. But actually uh, early on, in, during the First World War, he wasn't a Democrat at all. He was a monarchist. And, and he was a Prussian militarist and he was sure. hot-headed. So uh, every time you try and pin him down, he escapes. But there's a feeling that he himself, within himself, realized just just the amount of work it took to put, put really to appear in public yeah it strikes me i i mean in some of his fiction it almost comes across like um i think is is it christian and Budenbrooks has that sort of uh almost play acting thing even um ashen moon when he's looking back in death in venice he's an established author but he has these doubts about himself and doubt seems to run through all of his fictional creations. Leverkusen, you know, he, he has doubts about what he's doing as well. It seems to be very much part of man, even though he has this persona in public of almost a Yeatsian statesman or something like that. It's a very interesting. Yeah, yeah but when I read, I think the Yeatsian thing is good. When I read Man first, um, I suppose I thought all writers wrote out of certainty out of confidence, out of entitlement, out of a sense that I produce this and it is there. And there's a straight line between imagination, production, process, and the thing. And, uh, and it was only later I realized, for example, in the case of someone like Virginia Woolf, that just how much nerves went in, how much anguish, how much uncertainty, yeah. how much instability. I think with Yeats, it's always different because there is a sense of him. I know he made himself with masks, but he did have an extraordinary sort of inner strength, um, which which was uh, and a sort of sense of entitlement. Uh, but uh, but as you say, man, if you study him closely, in his best books, 
his characters are all sort of imposters or trying things out yeah, they, they, they and um that that he, that he doesn't operate um with with certainty and that's what interested me i mean in other words if i have a writer who uh, who i'm completely um is is sort of knowable is easy to see um whose persona and whose personhood equal each other, there's nothing I can do. I mean, but the novel is uniquely positioned, I think, to explore the inner reaches of someone whose outer reaches are different. And you can just at the most basic level, you can, in a novel, you can show what someone is, is, you can show what someone is thinking, and then you can show what they're saying. And you can see the big gap between the two things. But even more interesting is you can show who someone isn't, and yet who they're pretending to be. And you can show the sort of shivering nature of that duality. And um, you, so you can see what you can see. Sorry, that's, that's a pompous phrase, shivering nature of that duality. I take it back. <laughs> but, uh, but you know what I mean? It's, I mean, the, that the fact that there's something really interesting and a lot of energy going on between Thomas Mann's effort to seem in charge yeah. and, his, and his really, um, I suppose, um, feeling implausible, inauthentic much of the time. So, so all that's there. Uh, and do you think that that's part of the impulse behind his uh, Felix Kroll novel? That okay, um, I'm going to let out a few secrets here. I do. Um, <laughs> at, at the very end of his life, you know, he's he comes back from America from his exile, which has been caused by Hitler, in 1952. He's he has three more years to live. He will die in 55 at the age of 80, and it's pretty clear that he will have one more book. And he settles down to write a novel based on a story he wrote 40 years earlier. And the novel is called Felix Krull, Confidence Man. Mm -hmm. It's about a trickster, it's about a chancer. And it's, I suppose it's a great European tradition of Don Quixote or that, that sort of fellow who wanders about the place, um, slightly bewildered. And, um, but also that other fellow at the edge of the carnival in, Euro in, in European folktale, who's picking everyone's pocket and then moving on to the next town where he, he woos all the girls and then leaves them all and moves from place to place in that sort of um, trickstery way. And yeah. uh, man puts some of his own life, his own experiences into that of Felix Krull. So this was his last book. I mean, often we expect last books to be filled with, you know, um, distilled wisdom. <laughs> um, and in the case of man, he threw it all away. He just threw it up in the air. He just said, you know, this, I'm producing a comedy at the end of things. I should say the some readers were greatly relieved in that there was a this, this is a, I mean, Felix Krull is in, in it's an immensely readable book and very funny book and um, it, it's um yeah it's it's um it's 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 as you say it's a it's almost gives the game away saying this is who yeah. I this is who I have been. I think that's true and of course he must have known all through his life while he I get a feeling he was keeping the journals and diaries so that the secret would be outed at some point. I mean, I, I think he specified 25 years after his death, I can't remember, but he must, I mean, it, was, it wasn't a fiction he was going to keep up after death, to put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea um, of homosexuality in the early 20th century, and we know this from Roger Casement, is um, that while people might want it to keep it a secret, they nonetheless wanted it to be known and they wanted it to be seen. Why did Caseman keep his diaries? What was it for? And why did he not burn them or get rid of them? In some way or other, he wanted his secret life to be known. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it did him a huge amount of damage. In the case of Mann, yes, as you say, his diaries were, and um, he said, actually what he did was he wrote 35 years, and then he, that's okay. crossed out. 
and um, oh. it's but then it's twenty five. So um, and of course, I suppose he didn't realize that his wife would still be alive, um, as she was when the diaries appeared, and um, they um, they're filled with details of his homoerotic dreams. Sure, yeah. And um, I mean many other things too, but but that but that's. Um, that's that's certainly there, and there's some very funny things about his sort of coming in two guises. In America, he goes to America in '38, um, when Europe is slowly closing in on him, and um, he gets all his family out, which is very unusual. People often could get themselves out, but not their family. He gets his six children out, he gets his brother out, he gets his sister-in-law out, and he's really he's really being looked after by a woman called Agnes Mare, who's the mother of Catherine Graham, of the Washington Post. And Agnes Mayer, um, you actually can see it because she kept his letters. So we can see he wrote a letter to her on a given day saying, it is so marvelous to speak to you on the phone just now. You are really a marvelous help to us. I really, really, you know, admire your intelligence and your kindness. And then in his diary in the same day, he writes, what an old bag this Agnes is. And it'd be better if she didn't call anymore. How am I going to get rid of her? And was, oh, so at a very basic level, you have what's called hypocrisy. Um, but that's one of the things that happens with exiles. In other words, he's looking for asylum and he can't for, afford to insult anyone. Sure. And um, yeah. so, uh, you know, we, we can see his um, his two facedness uh, in a sort of um, very clear light. OK. Or his, his diplomacy, perhaps. Yeah, it was interesting. That's, another, that's another word for hypocrisy. Isn't it? <laughs> I suppose it is. Um, it was very interesting um, when I was reading after the move to Munich, when he starts with the the Pringsheim family, there's the twins, Katia and Klaus, and it seems to be obvious to Katia that he's attracted to Klaus, and yet she's okay about marrying him. It, 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 is that fair? Yeah. Or is that a, a fair yeah. reading of it? Yeah. Um, I was in Lübeck just the other day, um, and, on, and on Sunday I went to the museum, and in the museum in Lübeck you can see this famous German painting of... Um, five young people sort of dressed in sort of circus costume mm -hmm. and they were the Pringsheims okay. and they were a famous family from Munich and Thomas Mann saw a photograph of this painting in a magazine in Lübeck which is you know northern Germany versus southern Germany mm -hmm. and he cut it out and put it on his wall as, you, as a kid might now do a rock star and he um he looked at it and so when he went to Munich these kids were grown up and um he could see them at concerts and they were assimilated Jews, they were incredibly rich, they were extremely clever, they were bohemian, um, and they said whatever they pleased. And the, the most important thing, I think, is that Katia's grandmother was the most important feminist in Germany. Right. So they came from a family, you have to remember that this, 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 this is the age of Freud. This is the age when the whole notion of sexuality in these cities, I mean, just think of Munich as a cosmopolitan mm -hmm. place, is really up for grabs. And so the idea that, that a man might be interested in your twin, which, um, you know, and this might seem like the 19th century, might not have been such a strange idea for someone in Munich then when everything was up for grabs. And, um, you know, her grandmother disapproved of marriage, for example, Katya's okay. um, grandmother. And she loved Thomas's novel, Death in Venice, which is his most explicitly homosexual mm -hmm. book, Katya's mm -hmm. grandmother. So we, we have this sense of her as, as a, not only as an extremely tolerant person, but as a forward-looking person, or as a person who was highly modern. And the idea of marrying a famous young novelist, um, as he was then, mm -hmm. um, interested her. And um, she had six children with him, but I don't think she was ever under any illusions about him. 
And um, in, in her early 90s, she dictated her memoirs called Unwritten Memories. And in that book, she said, yes, I went to Venice with Tommy, her husband, Thomas Mann, mm -hmm. in 1911 and his brother. And we stayed in the Grand Hotel de Ban, which is a big hotel on the Lido. And he, yes, um, he saw a Polish boy, a youth on the beach, and he couldn't stop looking at him. All of that happened. And um, she says it in a very straightforward way. She says, so, you know, he didn't follow him in the street, which he does do in the story, that he didn't do. You know, it's okay, so yeah, sure. fiction. But the, but the basis of it was just something that happened the year before. So that, you know, it, it, people thought the book was, a, you know, that the boy was a symbol of beauty or was a metaphor for something. You know, no one realizing that this was actually autobiographical. This, this was a, a way for Thomas Mann, who was involved all his life in revelation and concealment, this time reveal, this book is reveal. And so, um, it, the, the, I mean, the, this novel, the, the novel of mine is really a portrait of that marriage. It's a portrait of, 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 of two strange people. I, I, I think at a key moment when those ideas about sexuality were, were, were really coming into the public domain, especially their domain, that they married each other and that um, she was always ahead of him, I think emotionally and politically. Um, there was an element, he has a novel called The Holy Fool, and there was an element always in him of a sort of holy fool. She was never a holy fool. She, she was a Democrat before he was, and she was certainly, um, I think, much more fired up about the Nazis than he, that earlier than he was. And um, it, it would be hard to imagine him married to anybody else. Yeah, absolutely, and certainly not having the, the tolerance she had, I think, for him. Now, there's a nice segue um, there when you say about how he drew heavily on his autobiographical you know encounters or whatever and then fictionalized little bits so obviously Budenbrooks is a fictionalization of his early family and death at venice and then he changes katya's sex to hans castor for the trip to the you know to switzerland and so forth in something like the magician or for that matter the master how much leeway do you have to add little fictional scenes that are sort of developments from the record if you like to put it that way um, i suppose the answer to that is very little and a lot <laughs> <laughs> and the first thing the facts are is a kind of scaffolding mm -hmm. in, other words, in order to create the building you need the scaffolding which you can sort of as though as it were remove later my job is to create an illusion mm -hmm. and the illusion is that you are in the mind of thomas mann and you're experiencing what he's experiencing what he sees, what he remembers, what he knows, mm -hmm. what he feels. And then my job is to try and stop you from asking too many times, did this really happen? Yeah. I know that people do that. And what, what I did was I took his, if, if I say he's in Munich in this year, he is in Munich this year. Mm -hmm. If I say he went to America following that, then he did. Mm -hmm. um, there are a few invented characters. Um, <clears throat> but when he's, um, I have no information at all about when he worked in fire insurance. You know, his family found him a job. I think it happens to every writer where your mother or your father says, look, you should get a job. And uh, he got a job in fire insurance. I, there's no information about that at all. So I had to invent a colleague for him, yeah. sort of rats on him, who eventually comes around to his apartment and they have some kind of sex, but not much. And, um, but other than that character, I think there are no inventive characters in the book. And there are obviously a lot of invented conversations yeah, yeah, in sure. real rooms, in rooms where these things genuinely happened. And um, I give him thoughts that, I, that I'm imagining he has, because this is more than anything a work of imagination. I, I'm imagining oh, yeah. every scene, scene by scene by scene. I'm finding a sort of drama 
um, and I'm looking for conflict. I'm looking for moments that I can work out where, where there are opposites happening. And, and, and even it's between himself and his children, himself and his brother, or, or indeed just within himself, or indeed. Um, and my job is to keep the thing as intimate as I can so that the large events are happening in mean, the First World War, the Second World War. Of course, yeah. But, that, yeah. but I'm not actually, you know, it, it is at one remove from those events. But I, I'm, I'm sticking to the facts as much as I possibly mm -hmm. can. But in the end, that doesn't, they don't interest me in the sense that, that, that they're just springboards or scaffolding or something that can easily be dispensed with in the general illusion that I'm trying to create. Yeah. I suppose that's where it differs from straightforward biography. Yeah, you, you have a scope to in to it. For example, I've no idea if this scene happened, but there's a, a lovely scene in America where they're listening to I think it's one of the Beethoven late quartets, and slowly the musicians shed their Americanness and become more ger German as the piece goes on. Now I don't know if that happened or not, but it's hugely memorable. And it should have um, happened if it didn't happen. <laughs> no, it didn't. Um, um, I go to a lot of chamber music um, in New York. And one of the things you notice about the audience even is that all of them have quite close European roots. Mm -hmm. In other words, that, that their parents, not their parents, their grandparents came in the 30s. And that idea of chamber music, of um, listening intently, of being in small auditoria, um, it seems to me to live in New York in a way that it might have once lived in Budapest mm -hmm. or might have once lived in Berlin. But what I'm talking about, I suppose, is something that's essentially Jewish. Yeah. yeah. Tradition. I didn't put the word Jewish into that paragraph deliberately. Mm -hmm. I thought the reader yeah. will get this without me having to say it, that I'm talking about the destruction of the Jews in Europe. Yeah. I'm talking about Thomas Mann thinking in 1943 um, that that thing of watching a group of young men with instruments moving across the city who are going to play some of the great chamber pieces, mm -hmm. that's probably over. That we won't be seeing that again. Um, we see, and so, um, I mean, that, that little paragraph comes out of a lot of things that I experienced and that I remember, but also, in, and yeah, so I'm imagining a moment where he's looking at them and see, he's been sexualizing them quite a lot with his yeah, eyes, yeah, sure. very good at gazing at people. So I think he's the handsome one, you know, he's the handsome one, or he's the other one, he's the other. And um, suddenly he stops doing that and he starts looking at them and he sees ghosts, he sees ghosts. Mm -hmm. He sees what's gone, he sees what won't ever come back. And um, no, I'm sorry, I wish I could tell you that came from deep research in the man art. Oh, no, 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 I'm happier that it didn't. way. <laughs> <laughs> It, it does lead me on to two things. Uh, we're talking about Jewishness. I'll just park that for the moment. But just on music, it's such a big part of what he does, I think, in his writing. And what your book brought out was, I, I wasn't aware, for example, of why the Mahler piece had been chosen for the film version of Death in Venice until I read your book. And the whole Mahler connection, there was the earlier Wagner connection. Then there's the Schoenberg connection. And I don't know, a lot of commentators have said that they didn't think he himself had the knowledge. And he was getting it from Adorno, he was getting whatever. And, you know, he was almost plagiarizing what Schoenberg was doing. I wonder, is that an element of his, I, I, I don't want to keep saying imposter syndrome, but did he feel adequate or did he feel kind of like he was not exactly pulling a fast one, but I don't know. 
I don't know how to phrase the question, but I hope it's coming across. <laughs> um, as the Second World War went on, he wrote a novel called Dr. Faustus. Mm -hmm. yeah. He took the Faust myth and he brought it into the 20th century. And he gave it to a German composer called Adrian Leverkuhn. Mm -hmm. And he had Adrian Leverkuhn invent a system of composition, which is very close to the system invented by Arnold Schoenberg, who was another of the German exiles living in California at that time. Mm -hmm. When Schoenberg read Thomas Mann's book, he said he could not have written these passages. He doesn't know enough. Right. Only person who's in his circle who could have written this is a man called Adorno. Yeah. And what Thomas Mann had done was he had got a book, an unpublished book by Adorno, who was a musicologist as well as a philosopher. Yeah. And it was an unpublished book. And, and there were three or four pages of describing this business of 12 tone composition. Mm -hmm. And he, um, working with Adorno, he just simply took it out. He cut, it was an early version of cut and paste. And he put it into his book. And Adorno didn't mind at the time. Later on, of course, as usual, he pretended that he had more to do with the book than he in fact did. Okay. But, um, Man had a problem I think we all have, which is that 19th century German music especially is so powerful, you mm -hmm. know, from Beethoven right through Schubert and Brahms and up, up into Mahler, that that's what man loved. That's, that, that was the music he loved. That was the music he listened to and it was the music he cared about. And what came afterwards, this, what's called the second Viennese school, I mean, the people like um, Schoenberg, Berg, Bayburn, man didn't understand what they were doing because he didn't listen to it much because he wasn't, he, he wasn't a musicologist. I mean, he wasn't, um, that, that wasn't his area. There were so many times in his life and so many novelists do this. You have out of your comfort zone. <laughs> I mean, for example, I haven't got a word of German. Right. That's um, and, um, I mean, you know, if you ask me like straight out, come on, you don't have a word of it, do you? Say, no, no, I don't have a word of it. So that you're always using the excuse, well, I'm just someone who makes images. I, yeah, I, I'm yeah. just, you know, I'm just, I'm just, and what you're doing is of course, you're feeding on the work that other more serious people have done, like biographers, like musicologists, yeah, yeah. like historians, and you are somehow just not in their league in relation to the hard fact and the serious piece of scholarship that you're always the magpie. You're always sort of swimming between, um, you know, serious pieces of land while you're just, you know, um, sort of um, almost silly. And um, so that, that, that's what he did at that time. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, There's a lot of that book, which is, um, Taking it from other, taking it from other sources, but he was interested in pastiche and parody. I mean, he wasn't stealing. Okay. He, yeah, he, was, yeah. he was doing something quite. He was doing something quite deliberate. And um, what's strange is that he almost becomes in these years, say 40, 42, 43, 44, He almost becomes a great man. You know, in other words, he's writing this great book, which will <clears throat> um, really try and deal with the whole idea of the relationship between culture and evil. Okay. And this is an important question because um, he has to deal with the idea that the very same music that he loved, which say, for example, the music of Wagner, Hitler mm -hmm. also loved. Mm -hmm. And he has to think about the, the idea of the 19th century symphony orchestra, that massive thing, the symphony orchestra with all the components, that that stirred the human spirit. It stirred audiences and big audiences. I mean, your halls of a thousand people are being stirred, having their imagination fired. Um, and um, that gave people enormous pleasure and energy, but some of the energy was poisonous. Some of, yeah. some of the business of unsettling the human spirit can unsettle the human spirit in ways which are not pleasant. Mm -hmm. And he had to deal with the fact that the very same music he was listening to contained or had a component that was 
effectively poisonous or, or potentially poisonous. I mean, it's almost like you think of a ballad, someone sings a ballad, an Irish ballad really beautifully. And there's one person in the crowd who thinks that, that the emotion stirred is hate and the emotion stirred is violent. I, I think we know that in Ireland, but um, it, was something he, it was something that he had to deal with. So that he wrote this novel that tried to, tried to tease out all these questions. At the very same time, he's making broadcasts for Germany. He, he records them, they're put on vinyl, they're sent to the BBC and they're tried to send them into Germany in German. And of course, he's talking about anti-Semitism. He's talking about the, you know, talking about like the, the sheer foolishness of the ideology behind it, national socialism. Um, but he's also touring America, and he's getting as many as as, as six thousand people come to hear this German. And he's faltering mm-hmm. English, and the speech he usually gives is called the coming victory of democracy. And it's you know, it's not the, the need to defeat Germany or the need to defeat fascism. It's about the future. It's about the coming victory of democracy. And it sort of sets an agenda for Americans that there is a, a good German, there is a German yeah. who, who actually yeah. comes out of German culture, a, a sort of bright German culture that believes in liberty. Mm-hmm. For example, there was no Japanese figure moving around America doing that. There was no right. Italian yeah. figure moving around America doing that. There was no other figure moving around America doing that. Mm-hmm. And he had the full trust of um, President Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And um, he moved around America and so that there, there, there's a sense in those few years that whatever he had done in his life culminated in this great book and this also these the becoming this figure um, who represented a sort of old rational German culture that would emerge again and would become a great democracy as it did. So that in, in that sense in Germany now, he's taken as a prophet and yes. me writing a novel about his um, his, as you say, his, his implausibility, his inauthenticity, his um, being a trickster, you know, it's, it's not necessarily particularly welcome. It's not as though, you know, this is the, this is the vision Germans have of him. It, it mightn't be welcome, but it's certainly a useful corrective, I would have said, but there we go. That's a different question that we won't enter into. I was thinking a little bit about um, certain parallels um, between, well, first of all, the, the the figures of Henry James and Mann in, in that they both had the the strong older brother, they both had a period in exile, they both, you know, there, there seemed to be parallels going on. It was interesting to me that in the first and the master, you chose to focus on a five-year period, but this one has much more of an epic scope. It's covering the early 20th, well, the 20th century up to the Cold War, you know, um, what was your thought behind that? Was it that man wouldn't fit into a smaller compass? Yeah, the um, Henry James was born in um, 1843 mm-hmm. and he died in 1916. And so his life, I mean, while he was affected slightly by the American Civil War and by the outbreak of the First World War, for most of his life, he lived in a time of peace and plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, from his point of view. And he um, definitely could get on with his work. and. His disappointments were very minor ones to do with, you know, books not being well received or being yeah, lonely or, but I mean, there were minor ones. Um, the problem, and, and I, as you say, I did the book for a five-year period before he writes three great books. He has yeah. from 1895 to 1900, more or less disappointment. And so that he has a huge failure in the theater. That's right, you know, yeah. he doesn't write a great novel during that period. So that therefore there's a lot of time to go over various things that are preoccupying him. 
you can't do this with math. And I did think about it a lot. And I wanted to do it at the beginning to find a more intimate time, to find a more, I suppose, um, circumscribed um, sort of field of um, for the narrative. But the problem is that, that you then you have to do things in flashback. You can't do the First World War for Thomas Mann in flashback because the First World War was, was such an important time where he really went nuts. And he, mm -hmm. he, he, in the first months of the war, he really becomes a militarist. You need to describe this in slow time. You can't just have it, something that you flash back to. And you need to show it where people don't know at what point it's going to end. What point is Thomas Mann going to become rational again? And you have to almost give it its full um, position in slow time, chronologically in the novel. So you don't know what's coming after. What's coming after, can, you, know, you, you have to sort of um, move into it slowly using an awful lot of detail. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with, with the death of his father. And it's the same with the Munich Revolution. It's the same with this meeting, Katia. All of these things require huge amounts of just very slow, careful, detailed work because all of them have a sort of an ambiguity at the core of them, something that can't easily get settled and you need to move in slow time. I, you know, so I moved into the chronological method that's used by the biographer. And I was uneasy about this because I thought, well, people are going to think it's just a sort of a failed biography. It's a biography <laughs> by a novelist. It's going to like not help my case, but there wasn't an alternative. But then, I mean, it, it's not quite that in that it tends to jump a few years and jump a few years to specific moments, um, which is a kind of yeah. interesting way of doing it. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't have any of the responsibilities a biographer has. For example, <laughs> we spent a lot of time, I mean, almost almost a decade, writing four novels about the Joseph story from the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. That's and right. I think I mentioned it once um, because I just feel like it's not my job to you know, going each as each novel comes to explain how it was written mm -hmm. to give the whole to give the whole detail of it. So, um, uh, therefore, I felt free. Sometimes, mm -hmm. just, just if something interested me more, I moved on to it, and um, that was how I proceeded without feeling: is this interesting for my book? Not is this interesting? Yeah, yeah. There, there's a an area that they're calling nowadays biofiction, where one tries to assume the voice of a historical character, for example, Nora by by um, Nola O'Connor, Nora Barnacle's voice. In either of the two books, the master of this one, were you, were you ever tempted to try to first person narrate them? Um, no, um, I, I, um, I couldn't do it. Uh, Nola O'Connor could do it, but I can't do it. Um, that the first person. The problem with Henry James is that his tone, um, even when he spoke, was filled with circumlo circumlocution. Um, and he didn't speak in plain sentences. Mm -hmm. And th th therefore, you'd be constantly involved in a sort of parody of his voice, as much as the use of his voice. And it'd be very hard to get that settled. And also, um, it, it would allow him, if he were speaking, to, to disguise even more than he did in his life. In other words, he would become so unreliable as a narrator that you would spend your time not believing him and realizing how much he's trying to conceal. And so that I, it never occurred to me that A, a I couldn't do it and B, I, the results of it would not work. And um, it was the same with man. Um, I mean, I did enjoy sometimes because the dialogue in the book is, is very, it's very modern. It, it's almost contemporary. And I did enjoy the idea of writing dialogue for people who were speaking a hundred years ago or more in another language. Right. And um, so, but I didn't, no, I didn't want um, 
in either case, I couldn't have done the first person. Sure, yeah, yeah, interesting. To I, I now they're not similar in any way, but it, it struck me that the use of, of the how people spoke it just reminded me of somebody like Hilary Mantel with Wolf Hall, where she's not going to be giving some pastiche Shakespearean language. They they speak plainly, you know, which is an interesting yeah. choice. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you start moving and giving them Germanic speech, or if Hilary Mantel had given them Tudor speech, yeah. um, I think you just lose the reader. You just absolutely, like, you, I think you have to acknowledge, no matter what you do, this is a contemporary novel, this is because it's yeah. coming out now. And, um, but, but I, mean, it, I mean, some people have tried to do this business of trying try to find an archaic method. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's something I couldn't do, but also wouldn't yeah. want. Yeah, yeah, sure. He had an extraordinary life man in terms of the two families. I mean, his immediate siblings and then his own family. Uh, two of the sisters committed suicide and then his two of his sons, didn't they commit suicide? It's extraordinary. It struck me that in his fiction, I'm not sure about suicide, but there's an awful lot of illness all the way through, like beginning with Hanno and then obviously there's the plague in Venice. There's Hans Castrop going to the sanatorium. There's Leverkusen deliberately infecting himself from Esmeralda with syphilis. Is that, do you think that was his way of bringing in some of that in a different form? He was fascinated by disease. I mean, it really is extraordinary. He loved it and he realized the, the, the sort of sense that he, that he could work with it in the same way as other writers want to write about love and romance. Mm -hmm. Thomas Mann wanted to write about tuberculosis, <laughs> um, typhoid. Um, uh, cholera, um, syphilis, anything that's coming your way. Um, he, yeah, he just, he, the two things that fascinated him were the erotic and the, um, the diseased. And often in the same body or the same paragraph, those two things come together. So that um, in Death in Venice, of course, the old writer will fall for this young man on the beach. And of course, the cholera will be coming in from Asia. You know, the two things will be happening at the same time, as though the very idea of erotic desire brings with it some sense of, um, you know, the body being being a being a being a, a, a sort of temple for illness and um, pain. I mean, in in Budenbrook's first novel, the extraordinary descriptions. I mean, really riveting descriptions of going to the dentist. What going right. to the dentist was like in the late nineteenth century, and uh, yeah. again, it's all about the physical weakness of this boy. That, that you know, he's teeth and and of course his father's teeth also i mean no one writes about teeth like thomas mann does and um but yeah but i think that's a really good point that that it wasn't as though in his books love leads to marriage sure yeah he just yeah, didn't do that. you know yeah. i mean and um he he did that that if there's love it's entwined in somewhere with something decaying and um, it, it, all that fascinated him it's almost a late 19th century decadent sensibility going on there, putting these two together, I always feel. I, I think you're absolutely right about that, that, that uh, the number of writers who actually stopped growing up uh, when the 1890s were over, include Yeats um, mm -hmm. and certainly include Wilde and certainly mm -hmm. include Thomas Mann and, and, and probably include Henry James, that, that whatever the 1890s did, with the whole idea of the lone male figure sort of wandering in the city, um, drunk on absinthe and looking for some morphine. And you know, the Baudelaire sort of flaneur figure, you know, a danger to others and himself, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, yes. um, 
the, the, that idea that people just change their spots as they move across London or Paris, that that was something that also really interested man and that and that he you know he he was born in 1875 which means that of course he was um he was he was growing up in that time and yeah, um, he was writing his first book at the in the last years of the 19th century and he was also i think really struck by the city of munich which was a different city then because it, it wasn't just the capital of bavaria it was a much more cosmopolitan place with a large jewish population um and a big sort of student and bohemian population um, I mean, there's no German city like that now. Although, yeah, yeah, yeah. seemingly, um, I was just there now. Everyone who's, in the same way as a lot of people moved to Leitrim, um, who were writers or were painters in Ireland, a lot of, everyone in Germany who was, you know, Berlin was really trendy. It was a cutting edge city for artists. It's now Leipzig. The, the rents in Berlin have gone up too high. Okay, and the artists right, yeah. have all moved to Leipzig, which I thought was very interesting. It's kind of the opposite of follow the money, follow where the, <laughs> follow yeah. where the money is. That's where the artists will be. Yeah. Um, I'll just finish then with one final question. Um, I said I, I was going to park Jewishness for the moment. So the Pringsheims, they're assimilated Jews, but there seems to be from the get-go an awareness of that that you, you treat very subtly. It, it sort of comes up with Mahler's widow, if I remember a little bit more openly. Um, was that a difficult area to treat? Or, or yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have to be very careful with it. Um, the, um, it's absolutely clear, I think, in those passages that the house and the way they're behaving is, is a way that people would associate with uh, high bourgeois Jewish people mm -hmm. in Germany. Their, their, their extraordinary interest in culture, for example, and um, um, their house itself. So you realize Thomas Mann is watching all this and he turns to his friend and says, hold on, are they Jewish? And the friend says, well, no, they're Protestants, but you mean that they converted? No, no, they assimilated. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, th this, of course, means nothing in the 1930s. You know, it's assimilated or not, they're Jewish. No, of course. That Thomas Mann's children are therefore considered to be Jewish. Mm -hmm. And um, so that uh, Alma Mahler, I mean, it's extraordinary. She's the widow of, of Gustav Mahler. She arrives and she, she, I mean, I read two biographies over her and there it all is, all, all her vicious anti-Semitism, just, just mm -hmm. rampant, just going on and on about Jews, who's Jews, who's Jews, who's Jewish. And I just realized, you know, that it, it, there's almost a sense that this, 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 this was part of who some people were, mm -hmm. but the problem the thing is not to overdo it in the book and also yeah. to make clear that um, once Hitler rises, everyone becomes much more aware of it and Cassius, her, Thomas Mann's wife, his father-in-law is, is treated really badly. All his money is taken from him and he's humiliated in most horrible ways. And um, of course, Heinrich, Thomas Mann's brother, his first wife, Mimi, she was the one who was stuck in Europe. She's mm -hmm. in Prague. And of course, they come together because she's, um, not only because she's Jewish, but because she's Heinrich Mann's first wife. And they keep her in the concentration camp and they destroy her at the end of the war. She's unrecognizable. Mm -hmm. She's had strokes. And so that there is one member of the family, the one they leave behind, who is, who, who is Jewish and who is utterly destroyed by this. So, I mean, it's, a, it, it, it's, it, it's an undercurrent in the book mm -hmm. all the time, anti-Semitism or people just watching one another to see who's Jewish or what, what this means. That was Colm Tobin in conversation with David Butler as part of the Dingle Lit Book Festival in November 2021. You've been listening to the Dingle Lit Podcast. If you want to hear more, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch the interview online, look for Dingle Lit on YouTube, 
or go to dingalelit.ie for more information on upcoming events. Thanks for listening.